I think I can say tonight without fear of contradiction that this is undoubtedly a familiar portion of the word of God but for all the wrong reasons. It records for us one of the low points if not the lowest point in the life of David which even on to this day still has its impact. Let me give you an illustration of that. Many years ago, we were involved in outreach down in Belfast City Centre, Corn Market. I remember a group of young fellows came along. We spoke to them. We presented the gospel to them. But there was one young man kept saying, what about David? What about his sin? And we tried as best we could to present the message of the gospel. But still he kept saying, what about David? What about his sin? And even as he left, I remember saying to them, listen, we have preached and presented the gospel in its simplicity. But he left saying, what about David? And what about his sin? Does that not bear testimony to what we read in verse 14 of chapter 12? How be it because by this deed thou hast given greater occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, not only in his day, but even unto this day, there are those that remember David's sin. There are many lessons that we could learn from this incident in the life of David, worthy of our consideration. But what I want to do tonight in the gospel is this. Look at this story in its entirety and bring to your attention five aspects or five facts connected to the story and apply them in the gospel. It's always good to understand what the background is, what is happening. And as we started the chapter 11, we find out that the Israel was at war with the Ammonites. They had besieged the city of Rabbah. Look at verse 1. They destroyed the children of Ammon, besieged Rabbah. The city was being prepared as it were for the final uh, onslaught. David as king ought to have been there leading his army. But we find at the end of verse 1 that David tarried still at Jerusalem. The events that took place when David should have been out with his men leading his troops in battle. He was not in the place where he ought to have been. And because of that he was back in the palace and as he walked on the roof of the palace, he looked out, he saw a woman bathing herself. And you know, he inquired who she was. He sent messages to his servants. She was brought. He lay with her. She went home again. And you know, the resulting sin that happened was not just something that happened by chance in the moment of time. But you know, it was just part of how David's spiritual condition was at that time. Word comes back from Bathsheba in verse 5. 
And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. And so David is forced to take action. I want to look at the events that took place after that. Bring them to you in five simple little thoughts and apply them as I've said in the gospel. I want you to see firstly that the actions that David took were meant to deceive. He sent the letter to Joab on the battlefield. Sent home Uriah the Hittite. And you know he comes home Look at verse 7. When Uriah was come on to him, David demanded of him how Joab did, how the people did, and how the war prospered. If David had a really interest in the battle, how his troops were doing, he should have gone there to see for himself. You know, he puts forward here a pretense of interest in the battle. Then he puts forward a pretense of interest in Uriah's welfare. And he sends him home to his own house. Go to your own house. Go home. Rest. You've been out in the battlefield. Go home and rest. You know, we find there in the following verses that David uses various endeavors to try and to get Uriah to go to his own house. He gave him a mess of meat. On that occasion failed. He brought him again. He had a feast with him. Made him drunk. Thinking that he would go to his own house. And of course his plan was to get Uriah to go to his own house. To lie with his wife so that when the child was born, no questions would be asked. No one would say, whose is the child? Where has it come from? And so, with great deceit, he put that plan into operation. We find that that failed. We find that on the two occasions... Uriah did not go to his house. Uriah slept with the servants on the steps of the king's palace. You know, my dear friend, those attempts of deception, they're a lesson to us. Because there is a greater enemy that we have who is out to deceive We're not long into the word of God in Genesis chapter 3. The verse 1, we read these words. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. You know, can we say at the very outset that the devil is out to deceive men and women. Back in the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, he came not to find out what, had God, what God had said, but to deceive Eve. And he's been doing it ever since. Deceiving and deluding men and women. He'll come as a sheep in wolf's clothing. 
He'll come as an angel of light. But the Bible tells us that he walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And you know, tonight, even as you sit in the gospel service, he comes with the very deceit of hell, with every subtle attempt, surreptitious way, he'll come. He'll whisper in your ear, you're young, plenty of time, young and healthy. There's no need to worry about things like that. You're able to be out and about. God will not punish your sin. Enjoy yourself. Eat, drink, be merry. For tomorrow you'll die, but there's no eternity. God's a God of love. He will not condemn you to a Christ-rejector's hell. And so lulled into a false sense of security regarding the eternal welfare of your own soul, you're deceived into thinking what he can supply for you. That's exactly what David did. He supplied a mess of meat for David to take home. He had the meal with him. He got him drunk, thinking that he would go home. My dear friend, tonight, let me tell you, young or old, the devil will always try to deceive and to to delude you into thinking that he can supply what you're looking for. He'll happily send provision along your way to satisfy your need, the lust of the flesh. He'll send along companions of life to get you out of life what you're looking for. I remember in my own experience playing hockey at school and going down a road that if I'd have continued on would have taken me down a road of ruin and destruction. You know, he'll always provide those things. That life with a capital L young person maybe that you're looking for to satisfy the longing of your soul. May God awaken us to see that the devil is out to deceive us. May he bring before us uh, the realization of the road that we're traveling, of what sin will bring, and the eternal judgment and damnation that lies ahead. Yes, his actions we're meant to deceive, beware, and be warned. But not only was it meant to deceive, but the murder was deliberate. You find again that the king puts pen to paper, as it were, seeing that his attempt has failed what he had already tried to do seeing that Uriah had not gone down to his house as he wanted to. David again writes another letter to Joab, the captain of his army, on the battlefield. And he writes these words. And he said to him, look at verse 15. And he wrote in the letter saying, 
set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. He gives firm instructions regarding the end of Uriah's life. He didn't write that he hopes he will die or that he may die, but it was that he will be smitten and die. You know that murder that was planned was deliberate. Could I say something to you tonight? As lovingly as I can. It is the purpose of the devil to see your soul damned in hell forevermore. And he will use every means at his disposal. It's objective not just to bruise you and make life difficult for you. But he's busy instructing every demon of hell. Plotting the downfall and destruction of your eternal soul in a Christless eternity. You know, as we consider that story, and as Uriah takes that message from the king, that parchment rolled up, sealed with the king's seal, and he makes his way back even to the battlefield. He did not realize that he was carrying his own death sentence from the hand of the king that he was condemned to die. Do you know that's just exactly the same as men and women? If I was to leave the pulpit tonight and come down and sit beside you in the pew and say, repeat for me John 3.16, I'm sure we would have no difficulty in doing that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If I was to ask you to read verse 17, you might know it, maybe not just as well. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. But if I said to you, could you repeat verse 18? Listen to what it says. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You know, Uriah was a condemned man. He was carrying his own death sentence in that parchment that he was taking to the captain of the host. And my dear friend, in your sin tonight, in the service here, you stand as a condemned man before a holy God. You see, the children of Israel here had long been fighting the Amalekites and now at last, the city of Rabbah that we read about, there in verse 1 of chapter 11, was under siege. The glass great battle to attack it and to take it was going to take place. 
Surely now was the last great battle to secure victory. And you know, Uriah is placed in among men that he had fought with before. No doubt courageous men. Men that he knew from previous battles and wars. And he goes in. He joins with those companions. He joins with those associates and friends. And under Joab's instruction, they go forth to take the city. And very soon we hear the noise and the tumult of war as they engage to go forward and to take the city. The fight's on. The going's tough. The enemy seems too great. And Uriah looks round for the support of those that he had fought with before. There's none with him. They had been told to retire from him. And he was left to die. That was the message that came back to David. The message that came that Uriah the Hittite died also. There is a great application here. My dear friend, you have fought many battles in life. Spurred on and carried on by the seat of the devil and the sins of this old world. Those sins that you've learned in your early days maybe have been good companions to you. But can I ask you this question? When it comes to fight the last great battle of life, will that sin, will that sin, having seen you to the very point of death, will it see you through? Those sins that you know you've committed in your own heart and life could be even excuses that you bring up about good works, morality, your vain boastings, your religiosity. Will they all be there in the moment of death when it comes for you? Will those supports that you leaned on in life be enough to see you through? From death into God's eternity. We sing that hymn. Will your anger hold in the straits of fear? When the breakers roar and the reef is near. When the surges rave and the wild winds blow. Shall the angry waves then your bark overflow? Death is certain. Eternity is sure. Not only were those actions meant to deceive, no matter not, not only was that murder deliberate, but we find something else recorded. If you turn over chapter 11 to the last two verses, 26, 27, we have God's viewpoint here in this situation. Yes, we can all give our opinions, and we're very good at that sometime. But here's God's opinion. Here's what the Spirit of God records for us. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The matter was displeasing. 
Look at the margin if you have one in your Bible. And it says to be evil in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't only the sin of lying, adultery, murder. And maybe perhaps you say to each one of those, well, I've always tried to be truthful. And I certainly haven't done any of the other two. Those things that you're talking about, what David said and did, you can't pin them on me. But could I suggest something else here that was displeasing to the Lord? You see, almost a year had passed. Word had come to the king. Look at verse 27. And when the morning was past, David sent her to, fetched her to his house and she became his wife and bare him a son. Almost a year had passed. There was no crying on to the Lord for forgiveness. There's no time that we read in between that David got before the Lord in prayer and confessed his sin. Our sin ascends as a stench in the nostrils of a holy God. The secret sin, sins of commission, sins of omission lie unconfessed in your heart tonight. And you know the pride that God hates prevents you from acknowledging your need of Christ. And that iniquity has prevented you from coming to Christ. You will not come to him. He who has freely pardoned all your sin, even though you have sat under the sound of the gospel. For David here, it was a year. Can I ask this? How many years have some of you sat under faithful preaching in this church. You've heard the gospel presented. Christ has been preached faithfully. And yet tonight, how many years? You know, you've still never come to Christ. You've never received him as he's freely offered to you in the gospel. You know, it pleases God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That's why the gospel is preached. That's why the message is brought to sinful men and women. It is our prayer that you'll come. And may God give you that grace and help even to come tonight. But not only do that, we find also here, we find the message God delivered. God spoke in chapter 12 to Nathan, the prophet. He sent him to David with a message, with a story. And as Nathan goes in uh, to the palace, stands before the king, recounts the story of the man who had many sheep and lambs, a wayfaring man comes. 
And instead of taking one of his own to feed that wayfaring man, he goes and takes one of another man who it was his only lamb, brought up as part of the family, loved and nourished. And he took it to feed the wayfaring man who had come to his house. You know, I can see in my mind's eye as I read those words. The Bible says there in verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. He'll restore unto the man the lamb fourfold. And I can see with my mind's eye, Nathan the prophet, turning to David with outstretched arm, finger pointing. David, thou art the man. You're the man that's referred to. You had everything that God would have for you. Yet you went and took another man's wife. If it wasn't enough, I would have given you more. God had given you everything, but still you were not satisfied. Could it be tonight someone in the meeting? For many a year your mind has been blinded. The God of this world has blinded your mind to see your need of Christ. To see your need of God's salvation. But tonight even as we've spoken... The Spirit of God has put his finger in you. Say, you're the one. You're the one that needs God's salvation. And tonight, may God open your eyes to see that. You're condemned. You're carrying your own death sentence. And if you were to die in your sin, What would they say at your funeral? How sad it would be. Brought up in a Christian family. Attending a gospel preaching church. Hearing and knowing the gospel from a child. To go out into the blackness and darkness forevermore. Thank God for the warning note. Thank God for the tender voice that speaks lovingly to your soul tonight. For with that voice comes a message of hope and salvation. You know, I'm so glad that the message that God sent to David through Nathan was the story of a slain lamb. A lamb slain to provide for others. Don't you see it? Christ The Lamb of God has been slain to provide salvation for you and me. Can we make it any simpler? Can we state it any clearer? Come with me to Calvary tonight. Let me sum it up in the words of a little chorus I learned in a little brethren children's meeting I attended as a young boy. They used to sing a little chorus 
Three crosses standing side by side of broken law assigned. Two for their own transgressions died. The middle one was for mine. How greatly Jesus must have loved me. How greatly Jesus must have loved me. How greatly Jesus must have loved me to bear my sin on his own body on the tree. It was your sin. It was my sin that brought Christ, the darling of the Father's bosom from heaven. It was your sin and my sin that nailed him to the tree. That those sins that he bore on his own body And you know he is willing tonight to free you from the punishment, from the penalty, from the power of sin. And that is the only message that will bring salvation. Tonight he pleads with you to come to him. My last point is this. Not only were the actions meant to deceive, not only was the murder deliberate, The matter displeasing. The message God delivered. But you know there was a moment of decision. The message that God sent caused David to confess. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. Not against Uriah. I have sinned against the Lord. And if you want to read his prayer, go to Psalm 51. Go home tonight, read it before you go to bed. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me against thee. The only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Yes, God put his finger upon him that night. He could have protested innocence. He could have denied the charge. But what good would that have done? God's finger had already pointed him out. And his conscience had been awakened. It wasn't just an outward speaking of the lips. But you know that prayer that resulted was an inward cry from the heart. Have mercy upon me, O God. Tonight the gospel message has been preached And God has, by his Holy Spirit, put his finger on you. You have a decision to make. And you will, tonight, make that decision, one way or another, to confess your sin and accept Christ, or to reject him and leave the meeting as you come in to the service You will either receive Christ or you will reject Christ. Which one will it be, dear sinner friend? Can I finish with a story? It's a true story. I was telling David, thank them for their hospitality today. I worked for the early years of my life down in Harlan the Wolf. One day I was making my way back to the office. A white hat, the manager, came across the road. 
started to walk up the footpath with me. Very quickly, that conversation turned to spiritual things. I told him I attended the Martyrs Memorial Free Presbyterian Church. And he said, oh, my daughter goes there. And when he mentioned his daughter's name, I knew her. She came to the fellowship. Billy was a saved man. And you know, immediately there was that bond came between us. And as he came through the office from time to time, we had good times of fellowship. But I remember one day I'm sitting in the corner of my desk. This is a story that he told me. It's never left me. And it comes with a newness every time I recollect. He said as a young Christian in the shop where he worked, the workshop, God gave him a desire to speak to all the men that worked there. And Billy was faithful in that. He took it gospel track. He spoke to the men individually. He said to them they were sinners. They needed Christ. And he worked his way one by one around all the men. But there was one man in the workshop. That's for the purposes of the story. Tonight call him Frank. He was agnostic and antagonistic. And you know, there were some other Christian men there in that shop that Billy worked in. They said to Billy, look, you know what Frank's like. You know what the reaction's going to be. But Billy felt in his own heart that he should go and speak to him. So the day came. He made his way to Frank with a gospel track in his hand. And he said, Frank, I want to tell you, God loves you. He looks down from heaven. He sees your sin. And you know, he has provided the Lord Jesus Christ as a means of salvation. Billy said, Frank took off the old cloth cap from off his head. He lifted his eyes to the big glass roof of the workshop down there in Harlan the Wolf. And he said these words, Hey God, you must have some pair of spectacles to see a sinner like me. And he went on to utter blasphemies that even some of the ungodly men in the shop said sent a shiver down their spine. Well, he left it at that. A couple of days later, Frank didn't come into work. Word eventually filtered through. Frank had taken a brain hemorrhage. He was in hospital. Billy purposed in his heart that that night after work, he would go up and see him. And he did. He was stopped at the door. The nurse asked him who you were going to see. He said to her, he gave the name. She said, I'm sorry. He's very ill. Only immediate family only allowed in to see him. 
couple of days later, word came in. Frank had died. Gone out into God's eternity. Billy went to the funeral. He made contact with his wife. He spoke to her. And the ladies, these are the words the lady said. She said he had a terrible end. As he died, he died with these words. Oh God, oh God, oh God. My friend, let me tell you something. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We've been singing hymns tonight to say come. Oh come sinner come. Why do you delay? The striking invitation is that you would come today. The harvest will be ended. The summer will be past. And then your fateful cry will be. My soul is lost at last. May God give you deciding grace. May you tonight close in with God's offer of mercy. Let's close with a hymn. 221. Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord. He will surely give you rest by trusting in his word. Only trust him. Only trust him. Only trust him now. He will save you. Hallelujah. He will save you now. We'll sing verse 1 and verse 3 only standing to sing. Then we'll bring the meeting to a close in prayer. Give thanks for the food. And then you're free to go through for the supper this evening. 2.21 verses 1, 3 and the chorus please.